sometimes it's like it, it can be tempting to just kind of re reach out. And the thing is, investors will take your calls, right? We will do like the 30 minute initial chat. But if you're a like not adequately prepared, then that can be quite counterproductive. The mm -hmm. other is like, maybe you are actually well prepared, but like we're not the right fit, in which case you've wasted your time. Hi, good afternoon everyone. Welcome to Funding a Better Future, a series of bite-sized episodes featuring the expert insights of climate tech investors. My name is Cherry. I'm the founder of Above and Beyond Recruitment. Our business partners with climate tech startups and we help them to scale and grow their businesses, either by recruiting for them and helping them build out their teams or by offering them talent advisory and consulting services. And this series is aimed at founders and leaders of climate tech businesses particularly to anybody that's looking to raise some investment this year. We're hoping that we can help give you a realistic picture of what the investment market looks like out there today, as well as some tips to give you the best chances of fundraising success and hopefully a network of people that you can then reach out to when the time is right for you. Today, seeing us out of our series with our final episode is Pooja Balachanda, who is the carbon, head of the Carbon 13 Venture Launchpad. Carbon 13 have built an amazing reputation over the last three years as a venture builder specifically set up to address the climate emergency. And they've incubated and accelerated the growth of some absolutely amazing companies that have got the potential to remove gigatons of CO2 equivalent between them. Um, Pooja herself has founded and exited a tech startup successfully before joining Carbon 13 at the end of last year to head up their venture launchpad. So Pooja, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And so I talked a little bit there about Carbon 13 and what they do on a kind of broader scale, but the Venture Launchpad is a kind of new part of their, their offering. So do you kind of want to give us a bit of info on, on what the Venture Launchpad is specifically and how, how that kind of differs and, and complements the, the traditional venture builder that they do? Totally. So the Venture Launchpad was started because on the Venture Builder, which uh, you may or may not be familiar with, basically we bring in founders who are very qualified either as scientists or technical founders or commercial founders to come in and actually come together and start companies and ideate. So that was sort of the, in the intention behind the Venture Builder. But from the very beginning, Carbon 13 has always been getting applications from teams that are already founded, that already have an idea, that have already made a bit of progress. But the program isn't quite as well suited to kind of helping them accelerate from their stage of progress. And so the Venture Launchpad was really started to kind of give those founders a home. So make sure that when you're coming in with your founding team in place with an idea that you made a bit of progress on, I think the support that's required starts to diverge pretty significantly, especially yeah. if you're experienced founders, which I think Carbon 13 is still looking for more experienced founders. Um, and so, um, and, and in order to deliver that uh, type of more more bespoke feedback, more or sorry, not feedback support, more effectively, uh, we started the venture launchpad. So the launchpad started in January of this year, so it's really quite new. Our first uh, pilot cohort just we we just um, had our investments kind of decided from our first pilot cohort of five companies. We're really really excited about the two female founded. Um, climate tech companies that are having, like, like we said, at least 10 million tons of carbon mitigation potential at scale. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, the, the Venture Launchpad has just kind of wrapped up our first cohort and we're about to start our next one. Amazing. And and who would be like an ideal prospect for that Launchpad? You said companies that have already got a team and an idea, but does there tend to be a sweet spot in where they'd be in that journey to make them ideal for, for the Launchpad? Well, I think ideally it's more than a pitch deck, I think is what it, what it kind of comes down to. So we want to have a team, we want to have an idea, we want to have a bit of progress made. And I think that's kind of the extent of it. I think it depends quite significantly whether you're working on a hardware or software solution. Yeah. So if it's a hardware solution, we're looking at some, we're looking for solutions that are around TRL three or four um, at the very least. And the idea is that we don't really provide the kind of technical support or access to lab space and these sorts of things that you might require to really do that early stage validation. Mm -hmm. um, where we can help on kind of a case-by-case -case basis is if you require investment in order to get to that next stage, we can help you with kind of thinking through your entire sort of product, commercial and carbon roadmap and presenting that in such a way that it is investable. Yeah. Well, I think with hardware companies, we're willing to take a little bit lower, uh, maybe like less progress or less kind of um, contact with the market. That being said, we would still expect that you've had you have some reasonably strong commercial hypotheses that are based on some customer discovery that you've done. Yeah. On the other hand, with the so with software companies, I think we are looking for a bit more progress. So we would expect that you've kind of tested something out even through like a sort of Wizard of Oz method where you're kind of manually doing work, right, even, even if you have a software solution, um, and that you've kind of done more of that early stage prototyping. Um, and again, customer discovery by the time you're coming in. But across the board, I think like the only way to say it is team is solid. That's one thing that the Venture Launchpad doesn't help with, unlike with the Venture Builder, like your co-founding team kind of needs to be solid. The idea needs to be promising. So we need to be able to see the decarbonization and commercial potential in that idea. Yeah. And you need to have made a bit of progress, both on the product and the commercial side. Amazing. And, and where people are coming to you, do there tend to be any kind of key themes that you see and what they're struggling with or what they're finding difficult that by coming into the Venture Launchpad, you can help them to, to overcome and upskill on? Yeah, so I think the challenges kind of fall into two categories. So one is really folks that are amazing executors. So I will say like we were blown away by the quality of applicants who haven't taken any kind of equity funding and sometimes not even grant funding, um, but have made, you know, significant progress on really difficult, even hardware intensive ideas um, and have had even like commercial traction or are coming in with a reasonably significant first pilot, you know, like, so we're, so, we're like blown away by the amount of traction that people are able to get with a relatively scrappy kind of um, resources. That being said, I think what we found is that those kind of founders tend to be amazing executors, mm -hmm. but struggle with kind of the method behind their madness. So right. being able to kind of articulate what's that product roadmap and strategy, what's the commercial roadmap and strategy, and how do you kind of um, balance all of these competing kind of inbound interest that's coming to you. So making sure that um, you're you're going about your next actions kind of in any of those directions strategically, as opposed to just kind of opportunistically. I think that's, and you always have to balance it as a founder, of course, but like needing to have that overarching framework. So I'd say like one side is like that method to your madness. And we do help with kind of aligning your product, your commercial and your carbon mitigation strategies. And I think all three of those really 
conveniently kind of feed into each other. And the carbon in, in particular is a really useful North Star mm. for actually making some of those product and commercial prioritization decisions. Yeah. So I think that's one category. The other category are those that really do need that investment in order to get to the next level of fidelity, uh, especially like I would say hardware startups often fall into this category that they... Uh, that they have a team, they have an idea, they've kind of gone as far as they can in terms of lab scale uh, prototyping and they kind of need now to make an investable proposition to be able to take it to the next level. And so that's where we're kind of helping them. Again, I would say like more with the strategy. So we're kind of helping them with iterating on their commercial kind of hypotheses of how they will actually put forward a credible commercial hypothesis. What are the sort of MVP traction points that you can show to an investor to show that these are credible hypotheses? You know, mm -hmm. so I think we help a lot with kind of that investment, uh, the, the in getting ready for investment and making an investable proposition as well. So I'd say like, um, so those are the two broad categories. The ways we deliver those are in kind of three streams of programming. So one is, again, like I said, aligning your product, your commercial, and your carbon mitigation strategy. Mm. Um, sorry, strategy and roadmaps, I guess. The next is kind of like based on your company's challenges. So like I told you, at this stage, people companies' needs tend to like really diverge um, as opposed to kind of earlier in their journey. And so if it's, you know, a product choice that you're trying to make in terms of your roadmap and you're getting pulled different directions by potential customers, for example, um, or if it's a commercial, you know, decision or, or and you need or IP strategy, like whatever those things are, we are able to actually match you with support to one on one kind of coaching and support that will enable you to actually get the advice you need to make those kinds of decisions and that kind of progress. Yeah. Um, and then finally, we do um, community support and kind of uh, and 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 pitching and communication support as well. So we prepare you to basically articulate that vision that you've kind of been setting with uh, the product carbon and commercial, but do that in a really compelling way so that you're able to be investable. Amazing! That sounds very comprehensive and very hands-on and kind of granular and and sort of bespoke to what each company needs at that point in their journey. So that sounds fantastic. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Um, and you kind of occupy quite a unique position there, right, where you're seeing like the breadth of the startup market and looking at all of these different prospects coming through. You're looking at the kind of inner workings of these companies and the challenges that they're facing once you're involved with them and they're in the cohort. And then you're speaking to like VCs and investors as well. So you've got this really broad, like holistic yeah. view of, of what's going on. So I'm just really intrigued from, from your perspective. How do you see the funding landscape this year? I mean, what, what's your perspective on how buoyant the market is and what the prospects are for new companies coming through? I mean, I think the prospects are strong. I think where you, I mean, you see like, obviously there are, is a tightening of belts, but I'd say like, I've seen that more with angels and individual investors. So people okay. who are investing their personal money, maybe will be a bit more conservative about doing that at, right now. That being said, I think there's a ton of money still left to deploy. Um, especially by like VCs and institutionals. So I'm not seeing that. There, and, and I think the other side is that it, a lot of also climate tech startups do rely on corporate yeah. um, and strategic support, whether that's like paid pilots or these sorts of things. I think on that side as well, some of these companies are seeing advantages, right? Like maybe energy companies, for example, 
might actually be doing pretty well right now because you know of energy prices going up and this sort of thing and so might be actually more open or might, might have more space to kind of think about how, how how they might innovate or or engage with earlier stage companies others i think are likely also tightening belts and so it might be more difficult to get the kind of strategic um especially investment related or like uh, or even paid pilot type work with with uh, corporates so i'd say like that's kind of the categories that are, I would say is like the corporates are quite divergent and they tend to be like a quite important, both in terms of traction with pilots, as well as like direct strategic investment. Those tend to be quite important. And that's where there's a bit of a divergence I'm seeing. Then in terms of mm-hmm. angels and individuals, I think overall there's a tightening. And then I think in the VC, especially like I, I guess I'm more connected to climate VC, not really generalist, but in the climate VC space, I'm seeing, you know, there's checks that still need to be deployed. You know, there's money that just needs to be actually used. And so I think, um, and and so I think the market is pretty, you know, strong in terms of where, what founders are looking at and their options. That being said, I think across the board, I don't know if this is a fact, a function of 2023 is a difficult year to, to raise in general, or if maybe climate tech is just maturing a bit as a as an industry. But I am seeing that like people are requiring maybe more traction or indicators of traction at the very least in order to invest, even in a pretty like novel scientific um, solution, which are which are a lot of the ones that we're seeing, right? So. I think I'm finding myself in a lot of conversations with founders where we're trying to kind of be creative about what those traction points might be. So let's say that you can't actually take something from lab scale, you know, like you're at lab scale and that's kind of where you're going to be until you raise further investment. But it's the commercial side that you can kind of maybe lean into to prove more traction on that side and kind of make up for maybe some of the tech risk. And so, you know, explicitly or implicitly. And so the idea is that like, okay, you know, maybe do you, do you need to, uh, so one of the companies that car- in the Carbon 13 portfolio, Open Hydro did a really good job of this. They put put out a research report um, with a ton of the their potential customers and stakeholders as kind of co-sponsors of a research report along with academic institutions. And like, it made them kind of part of that conversation. So they mm-hmm. had to have, they had to form relationships with all of these different companies um, to do something that they wanted to do, right? They wanted that credibility. But in the process, you show that you're like part of this consortium. In fact, you're facilitating and leading this consortium, which could, you know, lead to the kind of relationships and commercial traction that you need down the road, even if at the moment they're not signing on to it. So I think that was quite interesting. And, and you know, I find myself in conversation with founders a lot about, yeah, like I said, how we might get creative about showing that kind of commercial traction and de-risking that side. Yeah, that's super interesting because, you know, that throughout the course of this series, that has been a theme that's come up time and time again from investors. It's that get traction. Everybody wants to see early traction. And I think with a lot of these with a lot of these early stage startups, there's a question of, but how? <laughs> what yeah, can I I show, traction look like beyond a sale? What can traction look exactly. like? So and I think there is a ladder. Like I've sort of been like I have this framework in my head of like, you know, at the bottom is maybe you like write a blog post together or some sort of like PR, like kind of communications types, like associate your name with your customers' names and then, and and getting to know the right, getting to know people in the organization in ways that kind of are a win-win and then moving into kind of like, what are the things like basically up, 
upselling your partner into maybe like at the very end, like a paid pilot or a contract or whatever that is. And so I think that's been really interesting. Um, and the companies that we've been, so the other thing is that like, I think my background, I was a software, a D2C health tech founder. So I don't think there is a more kind of like quick feedback loop yeah. maybe than in, than in that field. And I think like, one of the things we did find was like just being able to articulate in a very producty kind of way what your hypotheses are and how you're testing them, even in the most kind of MVP ways and showing that like you have, again, a method to your madness. Like this is the reason that you're choosing this customer or this is the reason you're choosing this market or this is the reason that you're, you know, these are your three channel partners that you anticipate will make your customer acquisition costs not as high. You know, like whatever those things are, being able to articulate what those hypotheses were and why you're taking the decision that you're taking is really important in terms of investment too. And I think that's especially at the early stage, what investors are looking for is that you're able to kind of have that structured learning and decision-making process. Yeah. I love that. Brilliant. Um, and, and again, occupying the kind of the position that you do in the market at the moment in, turn, in within the sector. So that kind of breadth of vision that you have um, and, and the venture launchpad being kind of subsector agnostic almost. Are, are there particular parts of climate tech that you're seeing as being particularly attractive to VCs or that you're seeing are perhaps not yet saturated, but, but you know, you're particularly excited about this year, like growing parts of the, of the industry? Yeah. So I think I'll start where I can, I'll speak for myself and yeah. say where kind of the, the solutions that I find get myself, get me excited. And I think probably get my colleagues at Carbon 13 excited is really the innovations that are sort of along the climate tech stack and are enabling maybe like the sexier innovations that have been, that are supposed to come for like a really long time, but you know, are really expensive to even do the iterations, for example, or to or, and to bring it to market. So, for example, innovations that make growing mediums cheaper for alternative proteins, or right. software that optimizes gene ed editing and synthetic biology, or like tech that ekes out a little bit of extra energy production from existing kind of renewable energy assets. So, like, there's a lot of this low. I mean, it's not low hanging fruit, right? It's still really difficult, mm -hmm. but what feels like both an enabling innovation. So there's like a ton of these like enabling innovations that will make the sexy thing work, whether that's yeah. alternative proteins or hydrogen or like whatever that thing is. And I think there are also less, there are fewer players in those like further down the chain things. Um, and then the, uh, and so it's easier to maybe like be that than to be like a green hydrogen startup, you know, like, or, um, and, and then the other side is um, the ones that, are just low hanging fruit, it seems like, mm -hmm. you know, where it would be a no brainer. <laughs> like, so for example, you know, we were seeing a company that would make it much easier, but would, would increase the amount of energy that could be generated by each solar panel by 5%. And it's like, you know, that seems quite small, but it's like a really cheap retrofit. And so it was like, why mm -hmm. wouldn't someone do this? And of course, still a difficult solution, but it feels like there are low hanging fruit that people that, yeah. that, and those are the sort of things that kind of get me, get us interested, I think. Yeah. The other is like, personally, I'm quite interested in solutions at the inter intersection of adaptation and mitigation, because there are a lot more obvious pain points in adaptation, I would say. Um, so like, for example, there are, com there are companies working on low carbon air conditioning, like huge problem, right? Uh, most of the world is going to become significantly hotter. 
Um, and that's going to, and we all, heating and cooling are already like huge sources of energy. And so um, if you're able to do low carbon air conditioning, that's going to be something that both has huge mitigation potential, but also is genuinely a lifeline um, yeah. in a changing planet. And another example is like, I saw one recently around um, replacing diesel generators, like backup power generators with, uh, with renewable versions or with, with low carbon versions, at least not necessarily renewable. And so the idea was like, yeah, there are huge parts of the world whose grids are not reliable and use diesel generators. And, um, and that's a huge market opportunity, mitigation and adaptation. So I think like where, like, those are things that I get excited about um, is, is maybe the stuff that's like on this stack and sort of at the intersection intersection. And that adaptation and mitigation intersection is, it, like you said, a particularly interesting one because they're, they're technologies and things that we're going to be forced to have to use but are going to have a negative impact. So it's minimizing that. And there'll be problems that people, you're getting well ahead of a problem, right? That doesn't exist yet, but we know is coming down the line and solving and it now rather than waiting. But the thing is they do exist what? now, right? There are like huge parts of the world that are already far too, that are that where temperatures are already unbearable and AC isn't affordable, for example, mm. you know? Like, so there are, I think that's like the key here is that I'd maybe this is again from my like personal founder background. I think there's like, you have to find the really urgent pain point. And one of the challenges, speaking of challenges that companies come into us with, we often see that the problem articulation is like a carbon articulation or like, mm -hmm. a, you know, a climate change problem, which is all true. But then it's like, OK, we're going to sell to a shipping company or we're going to sell to a cement company or whatever that is. But you don't actually know what problem you're solving for them um, and whether that's an urgent enough problem for them. And so I think like this is the area where it's pretty obvious. You know, there's a very clear end user problem that you're solving. Um, and the way that you solve it can be something that would, you know, it make us worse <laughs> in terms of our fossil fuel use and kind of the way we're handling climate change or can put us on the right path. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, and in terms of the tips that you would give to to founders that are that are looking to raise this year, I mean, you've already given us some fantastic tips a little bit earlier on in the conversation around, you know, creative ways of, of evidencing traction and gaining traction in your market and building connections and collaborations with future partners and, and, and customers. But is there anything else that you would advise founders to be focusing on within their business? What do they need to kind of like be zeroing in on to give themselves the best chance of being able to, to raise money this year? I mean, I think my biggest one is probably what I said earlier, but probably the other is like stretch your runway by cutting costs, look into equity free sources of funding. So I think there's just like, I mean, even really small amounts from like equity free accelerators, we are not one of them, but there are a lot of equity free accelerators out there, community and university grants that are like smaller amounts of money, but can stretch your runway to enable you to get that extra bit of traction before you approach the market. I think the other is that people tend to kind of, especially early on, um, people tend to kind of under plan and learn by mistakes, which is when it comes to raising. Um, and so I think being much more clear about your investment strategy and your raise strategy is like really, really important and a step that not sometimes it's like it, it can be tempting to just kind of re reach out. And the thing is, investors will take your calls, right? We will do like the 30 minute initial chat. But if you're a like not adequately prepared, then that can be quite counterproductive. The mm -hmm. other is like, 
maybe you are actually well prepared, but like we're not the right fit, in which case you've wasted your time. Um, and even if we are like a fit, we might not be like the best fit. And so I think there's an element of there's so many of these investors out there. You have to think about kind of like, how much are you raising? What are you raising it for? What's the kind of support that you need? Do you need strategic investors right now? Or do you just need money? You know, like from what sources, at what valuation? Like there's all these things to think through and then work backwards yeah. to which investors you're actually going to reach out to in what order, like the, and then, and then like it becomes like a very different kind of you are able to approach people in a way that's kind of feels like a win-win. So for example, when I was raising and I was looking at angels, what I found was like, it was actually much more effective to approach strategic angels because we needed strategic support because we were a D2C company and we needed routes to market basically that were organic. And so I would approach angels that felt like that were, you know, that worked for channel partners or could be a route to my market, but we're also personally kind of wealthy. So the thing that I approached them with was like, Hey, I have a partnership opportunity. Can we discuss? And then, you know, upsell them into an angel investment. So I think like, it's so it like your hit list and the order in which you approach things and like what you approach people with and kind of what they care about is so important. And if you're able to be more strategic about your raise, you can be, you know, like I went from kind of spinning my wheels and kind of approaching people who seemed like sort of they were in my target for like six months to raising my round in six weeks, <laughs> because once I had been like a lot more strategic about that first step. Yeah, I suppose it's like any sales process, right? You have to be strategic exactly. and intentional about and not just scattergun speak to everybody. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And if if um, somebody is a, a first time founder and the whole world of like institutional investment and VC is completely alien to them, are there any kind of, appreciate I didn't prep you that I was going to ask you this question, so sorry if I'm no um, Are there any resources that you would say are a really great place for someone to start to just kind of, demystify it a bit any books they could read any communities they could engage with I mean I'm going to be somewhat uh, I'll be slightly self-promoting and say join the venture launch fan <laughs> because that is certainly what we you know why we exist and like what we help help with doing um yeah. I think we really do support on that on those things I think as a leave behind from this I do have a list of resources on this sort of thing that are publicly available that I'm super happy to share. Things aren't coming to mind at the moment, but there are like so yeah, many, yeah. there's so many articles and stuff. I think the other is just speak to the founders in your life. I think like the interesting, like I've, I got much better advice from further along founders than I ever did from kind of ecosystem people. Um, and so I think, so I think that's really, really, um, the, the way that you can learn. Also, there's a, what is it? It's not art of the deal, but uh, it's VC venture deals, maybe. Maybe it's venture deals. I, oh, I don't yeah. know what it's called, but yeah. Anyway, there's a book <laughs> like this that's like quite the, the the standard in terms of what people read to kind of at least learn the baseline of the of the language and everything as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Pooja. If people want to get in touch with you and they think maybe the venture launchpad could be a good opportunity for them, how how would they do that? So you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, of course, but also you can um, email me at puja at carbon13.com. Um, and yeah, I'd be super, I'm super happy to um, hear from you and, and have and have chats about the Venture Launchpad program. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap on this series. Um, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with my Wednesdays and Fridays after this. <laughs> 
probably just have to think of another series to do. So watch this space. Um, but if anyone out there has missed any of our previous episodes of the Funding a Better Future series, please go back and have a listen. We've shared the insights of some amazing people across climate tech investment, including Systemic Capital, Nesta, Planet A Ventures, and many, many more. Um, you can watch all of them on our YouTube channel or listen to them wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts. So thank you to Pooja. Thank you to all of our guests this series. And thank you to anybody who's joined us along the way. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please follow the show to be noted of all future episodes. We've also saved videos of all of our interviews over on the Above and Beyond YouTube channel. Check out the show notes to find the links to this and links to all of the resources mentioned on today's show. 